This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and content editor Andrew Dykes. And Ed, how are things in London? I mean, everyone kind of getting set for the King's coronation? Do, do, do people care? I mean, what, what is it like down there right now? There is certainly a, a proliferation of, uh, of, of, of bunting, uh, of flags, uh, of uh, red, white and blue cupcakes. Uh, it's, it's, it's kicking off in, in, in all ways. I'm just trying to uh, work out how best to uh, cook my quiche. Oh yeah, it's a quiche, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, but it was like some, it was some, it was some dreadful... Tr- Trifle or something or trop yeah last I think you should well, the, uh, you whatever know, the last event was real men can eat quiche Alistair <laughs> that's right that was the slogan wasn't it <laughs> they have picked a dish that requires eggs of which there is a chronic shortage right now so I feel like that that will be the next big story <laughs> mm-hmm. to break so look out for next week for the uh... so sort of a let them eat cake uh, situation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Any uh, proliferation of bunting where you are, Andy? Or uh, I haven't seen a single bunt. <laughs> not yet. Not, oh, not yet. Give them time. That's a threat. There will be bunting. Cool. Okay. So whilst we await that royal shindig, there's been something of a, a royal pain for the offshore energy industry this week. Look at that segue. It's so forced, <laughs> but I just couldn't resist. Once... In a generation strike action, we've had 1,300 workers, according to Unite, downing tools this week in a show of widespread industrial unrest. Dozens of platforms involved in Unite claimed this could impact production, although as far as we know, that has not been the case. Nonetheless, uh, this is indeed a, a tsunami of strike action, as they said, and there is more threatened on the way. But how... Well, how did we get here? We have numerous companies striking. Billfinger UK, Petrofax, Storks, Sparrows. There's been strikes in recent times with other companies. And indeed, there are votes underway for other groups outside of that list too. So this week, uh, 48 hours of uh, tools downed. Plenty of pictures coming in showing the workforce taking this action across all of these platforms. Dozens is not an exaggeration. There were dozens of installations involved here, which is a huge show of, of force. 1,300, it's still a fraction of the workforce overall, just to keep that in context. But the message, I think, nonetheless, is is getting through. And most of these issues are down to pay terms and conditions. Some of the issues are also linked uh, more directly to the continued use of three weeks on, three weeks off rotas for the workforce, uh, introduced due to uh, during recent downturns. And that's been described as kind of a hated shift pattern for the sector due to its impact on mental health. Um, so I guess just to go back to that question of how did we get here, I mean, I was I sat down this week with um, RMT's regional organizer, Jake Malloy. He's been in the gig for 26 years and uh, he's, he's leaving. He's decided uh, not to stand for re-election. Um, so we talked about his uh, career and his, his time, um, but also more uh, specifically about uh, this scale of industrial unrest and how is it how is it we arrived at this at this point and he said it's really a a consequence of the last 10 years or so so we had you know 2014-15 we had that crash uh much of the workforce took a cut uh they moved to three on three off as i said kept their heads down during tough times things tentatively then kind of picking up towards 2019 and then obviously COVID, a third of the UK workforce cut, 30,000 jobs, I think, is the number that OEUK estimated. 
And then in 2022, obviously, the oil price since uh, picked back up. Um, the industry is still broadly in a healthier position uh, as we speak now, a year later, with these uh, still kind of record level profits, certainly for the oil majors. And it's broad strokes. Um, you know, some companies are hit hard by the windfall tax, for example. But, you know, workers are basically saying, look, we've, we've taken a hit during these downturns. Profits are up. Where's our cut? Uh, and effectively, I think it is a tough position for um, operators in that to say no um, when you see some of these profits figures. Now, you might say, well, the industry wants to, you know, not to go back to boom and bust when you keep these costs under control. I'd say that's a valid argument. But Jake kind of made this also valid point. Many tradesmen now can basically drive to a site onshore, obviously, and make just as good pay or better in this onshore role rather than go offshore with the lifestyle disruption, the training costs much out of their own pockets, uh, the inherent risk, obviously, of going offshore too. So I think, yeah, something's got to give. And um, if something doesn't give, then, yeah, we might be back on for more strikes next month. In terms of that three-on-three-off uh, rotor problem, how, 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 how significant is that? And, and, and I suppose, what are the chances? Of, and why is it so hated? Uh, the the, the rotors issue has been rolling on, uh, as I say, for years. Um, broadly, um, there's different rotors across the sector, but I think broadly it was, uh, you know, two, I think in Norway it's two on, two off. Someone's going to write in and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> two weeks on, two weeks off, uh, I think was a more standard uh, pattern. If you think, you know, two weeks at home, two weeks uh, away is, is seen as a, you know, that's, that, that's I think is seen as a good balance. Three weeks uh, offshore and then two weeks uh, at home. Um, when that was introduced, that was really seen as a way for the industry to, to deal with the costs of the, the, the downturn in 2015. Um, that has kind of had a hangover um, in recent years as well. And there obviously has been, over that intervening period, some you know, union pressure about getting off of these rotas. And some operators have, uh, to be fair to them. Um, but yeah, it's still a hangover. Not all of these individual companies, not all of these pertain to the rotors issue, but certainly when that was introduced, it was really seen as a, a, a way of dealing with those costs, but a, a real issue for mental health and for lifestyle, you know, for all kinds of, of things. And there might be people who work on on ships um, who, who, who have much wider, months-long rotors uh, who, who might contest that view. Yeah, was, we, we've written about this before and that is the. I mean, it is literally just the over the Python sketch where as soon as <laughs> people as soon as people set out their kind of contentions with three on three off, you get seafarers going, "Oh well, in my day it was three months, and I, we didn't see a single human being." And then someone else goes, "I when I went yeah, to school, I had to walk across so Everest. I, to, I was deployed to the International Space Station. I didn't see another person for eight, three years." <laughs> But you know, a bit of solidarity wouldn't hurt anyone, guys. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that 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 is it. I mean, but I mean, I suppose if you're accustomed to that lifestyle, you know what you're buying into. Two weeks on, two weeks off, and then they say, well, uh, three weeks now. And I think there's a knock-on impact there in terms of holidays and, and various other things like that. So it's been a real issue of uh, bone of contention for the industry in, in that time. Um, but I guess I guess more broadly, the the, the point that I would perhaps make is that. Um, if you can't take care of your workers and make it an attractive sector to, to, to work in, then that's a problem. You know, most contractors I speak to at the moment are hiring. They're seeking people, but it's tough to get people. Obviously, that's in part due to what we saw during COVID, those, that sheer scale of job cuts. And now we have this activity uh, picking up. But um, 
you know, erosion of terms of condition and conditions over the last kind of 10 years. And, you know, if, if it doesn't seem like production has been impacted by this, but, you know, if you are wanting to ramp up activity and you are wanting to get people attracted to this industry, it's not a sunset industry and all the rest of it, uh, having 1,300 workers um, strike because they're disenchanted with the sector doesn't really send out the message you're after. The other thing is, is you know, pay and conditions are kind of the only bargaining chips on the table, right? I mean, they can't, they can't kind of do the work from home hybrid offer that a lot of other businesses no. can, you know, they can't kind of put beer out on Fridays or anything. There's no kind of other lifestyle uh, benefits that they can set out. So kind of an unwillingness to at least recognize, I think in a lot of cases that the effect that some of these rotor patterns are having on people. The other one is IR35, of course, mm. which we could kind of do a whole separate podcast about, but yes. sort of contracting nature and the effect on when people are counted and when they're not. And obviously the personal finance aspect of that, plus all the costs of training is, is a huge effect on this. But yeah, definitely widespread discontent with a lot of the the nature of work, offshore, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, OEUK and others are, are seeking a resolution. How, success, how likely that is to be? Uh, well, who's to say? We'll, we'll find out soon. But uh, okay, we will leave strikes and the UK for now. But uh, we'll be back in a bit. But first, some fraught politics in chat with Ed. UK export finance can help your business grow overseas. Last year, we helped UK exporters access £7.4 billion of support by providing government-backed finance and insurance. We can help you win export contracts with attractive finance terms. Got orders overseas? Fulfill them with a working capital loan. Exporting to a challenging market? Make sure you get paid with the right insurance. To get the exporter's edge, search UK Export Finance or call us on 0800 538 5111. Okay, Ed, some, well... Tense relations between Chad and Cameroon over a pipeline deal. Uh, tell us how that's been playing out. Indeed. So, um, casting our minds back to uh, to, to December of uh, last year, uh, Savannah Energy, a sort of a small uh, independent listed in London, uh, completed a deal to buy Exxon's assets in Chad, some upstream assets, and and a stake in the pipeline, which runs from Chad into to Cameroon to the uh, to the port there. Um, obviously a big win for Savannah up until the point that it wasn't mm. um, when Chad suddenly decided that actually it uh, it, it it didn't agree that uh, the this sale should go ahead it it objected to the terms it objected to the uh, the transfer of ownership from uh, from obviously the world's you know sort of uh, largest kind of oil company in some ways to uh, a sort of a relatively small newcomer to the company country so uh, things looked pretty rough, um, and in March, Chad nationalised those assets, um, seized the upstream uh, fields and the uh, stake in the pipeline. Um, but Savannah had, at that point, still got uh, the stake in the Cameroonian section of the pipeline. Um, so it was a sort of strange situation where... Uh, Chad obviously had some of the pipeline Cameroon's got the rest of the pipeline most of the pipeline in fact and so Savannah's got a sort of a, 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 a part, a, an equity stake in the, in the Cameroonian section Cameroon uh, 
relatively recently said that it was interested in growing its stake in the in the pipeline in fact it's a, it's, a, it's something that's been it's been pushing for for a while it's made various offers to chad in the past to try and increase its stake it's 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 uh you know obviously keen to kind of get a greater share of those those pipeline tariffs and obviously it's a sort of a major strategic asset Chad has uh, rejected the idea of, uh, of 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 selling its stake to Cameroon in the past, and now it's 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 really uh, become extremely cross about the idea that uh, Cameroon should buy uh, a stake, uh, increase its stake through this through this deal with Savannah. Um, so things came to a bit of a head uh, last week. Uh, Chad decided to withdraw its ambassador from Cameroon, which obviously is uh, is, is is a fairly uh, fairly big deal in terms of sort of diplomatic relations. And obviously, this is a real problem. Uh, Chad um, has got sort of the, the, you know upstream production, um, you know, relatively modest, but with the, the chance to grow. But it's really reliant on Cameroon um, for a lot of things. Uh, so it exports oil through Cameroon, but really for everything else that it wants, any sort of foreign goods, really that all that's all got to come through Cameroon and Cameroon's ports. It's essential, therefore, that these these two countries get on. Um, there's there's obviously that trade side of things. There's also a uh, a terrorism side of things. Boko Haram is continues to be a challenge in in, in northern Cameroon and, and Chad has been really uh, a key part in in local you know uh fight against Boko Haram but also is it's seen as a sort of an international ally the the US has a number of training exercises with Chad and so on so there's an incredibly complicated sort of web of relationships and and, and difficulties in terms of you know how these these, these countries sort out the, this, this problem. Cameroon obviously, you know, would like more in terms of, uh, you know, pipeline tariffs, as, as noted. Savannah seems like it's it's sort of really kind of, you know, growing in Cameroon. So it's it's recently appointed a, a Cameroonian chair. It's struck a deal to do uh, renewable power in Cameroon. Because for Savannah, the, the the challenge is 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 also quite existential. The the, the deal in in Chad was supposed to be its sort of shot at growth. Um, it's got some some gas production in Nigeria, which is you know which is modest, but it's really looking for transformational growth. Chad looked like that opportunity. Now suddenly it doesn't. Uh, it's also struck a deal in South Sudan with Petronas. Obviously, with the conflict in Sudan really continuing and showing little sign of diminishing, that's a, a major challenge for South Sudan, which is also reliant on exports through Sudan. So for Savannah, things are looking pretty challenging. Um, it needs to really uh, work out a way through this. It looks like its, it's way through this is, is sort of that focus on, on Cameroon. But obviously, there are high-level political manoeuvrings at stake. And, and you mentioned that the importance, the reliance, I guess, on Cameroon's ports. I was just, and, and you talked about how the relations between these countries have been. I mean, historically, relatively good. And I suppose, how significant do you think this issue could be in terms of uh, deterioration? I suppose uh, going forward. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a real challenge. I mean, I think uh, so. Cameroon has is obviously eager to repair its relationship. It's uh, the the president sent a, a special uh, representative to hold talks with uh, with the Chadian president uh, this week. 
obviously with a, with a hope to sort of try and patch up these these this relationship. So I think, look, it's it's clearly recognised as as a, as a challenge. But I think the the kind of the, the wider question is is about that question about how these two countries get along. I think that the, the pipeline's always been in like a real challenge. Uh, the World Bank was involved in its construction years ago um, with a deal that that really fell apart under under pressure from Chad. Chad decided that its internal security needs uh, required it to essentially extract more cash. The, the 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 problem now is um, there's there's been a change of government in in Chad, um, so there's a there's a, there's a new president who's uh, who's the the son of the old president. The old president, if you'll remember, uh, died in battle, uh, oh, fighting yes. uh, fight, fighting a sort of a, a, an insurgent group. So so the, the 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 new president is is I suppose something of, of an unknown quantity. He's he's clearly got he, he came from them from from the military. He's clearly got an eye on security. And he seems to have taken the decision that um, even taking these steps, which looked like, you know, well, so the, the Savannah deal is going to arbitration. Uh, most people have said that Chad is going to lose that arbitration battle. So we'll need to come to some sort of an agreement with, with Savannah. But it's, good, it's a deal that's going to take, they say, two years, perhaps, to, to get through arbitration. So it's, it's a challenge. Is there contention just that it's, it's sort of not morally right that there would be a different split on the pipeline i mean what what is fundamentally the the point that they're the the beef that they have so uh i think i think chad uh has 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 struggled i suppose for some time around around that relationship on the pipe i think there's there there was a suggestion i think it was last year maybe the year before that that cameroon buy chad's stake and, and 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 chad felt that this was this was not the way forwards I think one of the problems around this pipeline deal is that uh, Chad has now accused Cameroon of uh, interfering in a deal that Chad is trying to move ahead with with Petronas, Malaysia's uh, national company. So Chad is trying to buy Petronas's assets. Cameroon, they've accused Cameroon of, of, of obstructing that deal. So it's 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 just sort of a part and parcel of a sort of a, a proliferation of, of of challenges around this sort of prickly prickly relationship that seems to be only getting worse, but that is actually really important that they patch up because of the security issues, because of the trade issues, because you know they are two countries who are next door to each other and need to get along. It's nothing but prickly issues on this podcast, and it's uh, <laughs> all the way down. <laughs> yes, it's time for a change. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Ed. Um, and next up, we'll be. Back to the North Sea and the ports of Ardesir. The UK government has set out its overarching plan to get the country to net zero. But what are the next steps we should be taking along the way? In the fifth episode of Net Zero Nudge, Energy Voice, in association with EY, drills into some of the questions around energy storage. As renewable energy becomes an increasingly important share of the grid, and we dial down hydrocarbons such as gas and coal, balancing out the peaks and troughs of generation and demand will be essential. In this episode, James Nicholson, partner at EY Parthenon, and Alex Okineda, CEO and founder of Gore Street Capital, talk over some of the opportunities and challenges around energy storage, where we've been, where we are now, and where we're going. That's Net Zero Nudge, episode five on energy storage, coming soon. Okay, so Andy, it's been a, a big big week for the old uh, Highland port of Ardesir. Is it likely to get this, well, this new lease on life? Yeah, a huge week. A uh, quick, bit, quick bit of history for those not in the know. Uh, Ardersir is a port around 14 miles east of Inverness on the very edge of the Moray Firth. 
Uh, at the moment, it's the largest brownfield site of its kind in the UK. Uh, and for North Sea fans, it's the base of the former McDermott Oil and Gas Fabrication Yard. So that opened in 1972 uh, and made a huge number of, of jackets and offshore platforms uh, that was used in the, in the North Sea boom at that time. Uh, at its height, it employed around 4,500 people and it was the largest private sector employer in the Highlands. So huge deal, as was. Uh, it eventually shuttered in 2001 and it kind of lay dormant and was then acquired in 2016 by a Derbyshire-based property developer called CWC. I don't think much happened at that point. And then in 2021, was acquired by two guys, Steve Regan and Tony O'Sullivan, who had uh, big plans for kind of offshore wind and decommissioning at the site. Um, this week, they've been given a huge boost for those plans with uh, US private equity firm Quantum Energy Partners announcing a 300 million investment deal to redevelop the site for, for mainly those two things, offshore wind and decommissioning, with a view to transforming it into what they call a major energy transition facility. So they've appointed a former BP executive, Lewis Gillies, as the CEO of the new parent company, Haventus. So uh, Quantum uh, owns Haventus. Haventus owns Ardersier Port, uh, which is the, the site. Haventus also uh, is looking at kind of other energy transition opportunities. So that's kind of their, their gateway into a, a bunch of different potential investments in the UK and further afield, uh, he told me this week. So uh, it's worth dwelling a little bit on, on the cash. £300 million is a huge amount of investment in energy transition and in, in the area. Um, Mr. Gillies was saying this week it's about 10% uh, of all private equity invested in Scotland last year. It's the equivalent of. Um, so what does that buy them? They're looking to build a two kilometer long quayside space and there are 450 acres of, of marshalling assembly and operations space behind that quayside um, that they want to use for, again, for offshore wind, moving the parts around, assembling turbines, floating them out and, and kind of building this huge Scotland boom that we're really hopeful that we will uh, manage to achieve. And uh, he was saying that, you know, you look at what, what uh, sites are available around Scotland and, and what people need in the offshore wind uh, supply chain. You know, we've got people who can make turbines, we've got people who can make blades, we've got people who can do heavy lift capacity. What people need is this space, just space to move all these things around, put them together, uh, and then float them out. So he's saying that this, this site really aims to be that space that people will need. Um, so he's promised thousands of jobs to build it and hundreds of jobs once it's operational. I think there are broader plans for kind of different um, potential energy transition businesses around the port, but but mainly around these kind of uh, assembly and, and marshalling uh, plans. And he was saying to me that, you know, he wants it to be this kind of hundred year long uh, lifetime and not, not this 30 year boom and bust as it was uh, when it was a McDermott yard. So um, big plans. They, the decommissioning side of things as well, also again, huge week. Uh, they were, last week they were awarded a 28,500 tonne waste management license from SEPA, which I think doesn't sound like a lot, but I think would make it one of only two or three facilities in the UK that have a decommissioning license. Uh, and that means that they can take uh, vessels, platforms, bits of kit from the North Sea, uh, disassemble them, recycle them, um, whatever we need to do to, to remediate. And uh, the idea, Tony O'Sullivan told Hamish, uh, one of our other reporters this week, that uh, the idea was that they'd be able to take on a lot of these Turkish and, and Indian and uh, Danish and Norwegian yards. I think that there's a sense that the UK loses out a lot of decommissioning work to these yards. Um, and uh, Mr. Gilly said he, you know, he hopes it's a, a bit of a blank canvas. He said it's going to be a, a bespoke facility for work. 
And uh, he's hoping to form some strategic relationships with the UK operators to, to get that off the ground very soon um, as he comes into post. So there are some other proposals around it as well. There's uh, a heritage center for McDermott's um, has been tabled, I think, in the, in the council plans a few months ago. Um, so there's a community element as well. And uh, it's probably worth, there's some great uh, Facebook pages around the McDermott's uh, site that we use frequently. There's a huge community of people, obviously, that still kind of means a lot to them, either from the local area or they work there for a few years. And uh, some great pictures if you're a fan of humongous uh, offshore jackets being assembled and laid on their site. Um, but yeah, worth checking those out. I, I saw I saw somebody shared your uh, well, shared one of the articles anyway on the McDermott's Artist Here uh, Facebook page, and yeah, it's full of all these guys that I guess worked there uh, up until two thousand and one or 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 prior, and they they were really positive about it. I don't know about the actual community uh, in and around Artist Here today. I'm, I'm assuming they'd be pretty pretty positive too, but maybe we can pick that up later. Yeah, I mean, three hundred million uh, into a Highland Porsche. Um, you know, it's it's real money. I mean, real vision uh, and an opportunity to to get after these things. You know, we do get now and again. You do get these what I like to call big promise projects that never seem to quite uh, reach fruition. Um, so it's good to get that kind of show of faith there. I, I, I'd be quite curious to know how far three hundred million gets them. Uh, I'm assuming it's probably based on the scale of, of their ambition, probably not all the way, but um, definitely moving the needle a bit. Um, I, d I don't think it's a home run, but I mean, Aberdeen's harbour expansion was, what, 250 million, something like that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think enough... that number went up steadily <laughs> over time. But, <laughs> don't don't uh, quote yeah, me on that, but I think that that was the stated. But anyway, to you know, that should buy them a good chunk of quayside space and hopefully some yard clearing and yeah, a bit of, bit of decom space to get started. Um, Lewis Gillies was saying he was hoping to get the first uh, work on the key wall started this summer and they want to open 600 meters of key side space uh, potentially by next summer. Um, so he's, he was describing that as kind of the gateway into the, the field of the rest of the site, um, you know, clearing that and clearing all, some of the debris in the channel, which I think has kind of been left to ruin a little bit uh, since it was abandoned. Um, but that will definitely get them going. So. Is there is there like local manufacturing around Odyssey? I mean, uh, obviously all this uh, this 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 talk of sort of building wind turbines feels very uh, very now very zeitgeisty. Uh, but in terms of sort of you know other 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 sort of the factories and and, and sort of construction uh, bits that, that that are needed to support it. So there are a lot of bigger or other ports and marshalling spaces. As yet, I don't think there is much in the way of actual making turbines and things. It's very much space to bring all these things together kind of weld them together in some cases, and then stick them in the sea. Um, but the the hope is, with especially with the the green freeports, which is worth mentioning, um, that a lot more of that will be attracted, and you'll kind of have these co-located sites and a lot of the value chain. I think the, the full extent of that promise is maybe yet to be revealed <laughs> as to how much we can actually get. There's maybe one thing we should point out here. I mean, I don't know to what extent that's this is still in the air or not, but certainly in 2021, uh, this, the Artisy Airport Authority signed this partnership deal with BW Ideal um, for manufacturing of, of floating offshore wind facilities, um, concrete floating foundations, um, I think was what they were particularly looking to create, this kind of serial production line on that. So it's in the it's in the offing, um, and that would be a real, a real kind of economic value add if that can happen. Um, but, you know, it, it's all going to depend on what they can get up and running, but that that seemed to be the ambition 
back then. I don't know whether uh, doesn't sound like Lewis um, Gillis necessarily was playing up that angle at this stage, but um, it was a little bit too early, I think, to to sort of say the full extent of those negotiations. But he it, he said it was a, a relationship he was keen to kind of drive forward, and I think obviously floating wind that that area of the northeast definitely is really well positioned for that and they have you know the deep water space they have the hopefully now this marshalling space yeah the full extent of what happens on land is is the big question i think but you know it by the time you have those you know turnkey facilities it makes a lot of sense to start building a lot more manufacturing capacity in the back end um yeah the, on the on the green freeports element i was really curious as to what factor that had in their investment decision and apparently none really apparently they're kind of not in the te technically in the Freeport zone, which I found very interesting. Um, but he was very keen to extend what he called the hand of friendship to all the other ports in the area, who I think are. Um, but he kind of saw the whole site as the whole region as a, as a bit of a cluster for this. So he suggested there wasn't a lot of, or he hoped there wouldn't be a lot of competition between uh, NIG and Port of Cromarty Firth and all these other sites that are also hoping for uh, some of the Scotland boom. Um, and that they were, yeah, hopefully keen to collaborate. Obviously, uh, I would need to seek comment from them as to their, <laughs> yeah. what, what they uh, make of the hand of friendship. But hopefully, we're all in uh, <laughs> we're all in alignment here. Well, we know that we're going to need every single port plus a lot more at the moment in order to get even a, a share of the Scotland kind of work. So that kind of makes sense actually but yeah interesting particularly about the freeport stuff um, but you know good to see these old uh, oil and gas spaces uh not just artists here but kishorn and, and, and elsewhere you know getting revamped for this kind of work so very encouraging yeah yeah okay uh well in that case that is it uh for this episode of energy voice out loud thank you to ed and to andy for joining me i'm off to go hang up the bunting and that is it so thank you for listening and see you next time Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.